Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Exposing the deep state and government overreach. You're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's news talk, TNT. Hi, welcome to my show today. Um, I just want to do a reminder before I go into my main monologue about <clears throat> the 20th and 21st of February. Julian Assange will be at the Royal Courts in London. There'll be a hearing to see whether he'll be extradited to the United States and presumably spend the rest of his life in a dungeon somewhere for his journalism in the uh, 2000s of exposing uh, the activities of the deep state. Um, the, the TNT, of course, uh, spiritually affiliated with uh, Assange's uh, exposure and of secrets and uh, whistleblowing activities, will be covering this. So do tune in. We'll be covering it directly from the courts and from other places around London. So those two days, pencil those in for the 20th and 21st. Now, I just thought we'd talk a little bit about the aftermath of the famous Tucker Carlson-Putin conversation uh, in Moscow uh, last week. Um, it was uh, initially the, the Western and mainstream media were quite quiet about it and even re reported uh, that uh, Putin thought it was unthinkable that uh, Russia would go into Latvia or Poland. And so, although there were some misleading headlines saying that he was uh, going to start World War Three, by and large, there were some fair reportage, perhaps because Tucker Carlson had got 200 million views on Twitter, known as also known as X, uh, by within three days. So they couldn't lie about that. They had to sort of stick closely to the truth. And last time I looked, I think he had 13 million views on YouTube, which is sort of uh, multiples larger than any uh, mainstream media show from the BBC or CBS and whatever they're called. So I'm hoping that uh, we'll see more of this real journalism taking place. Now, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, I've digested the speech, I've watched it over again, and I've probably talked about it in my previous shows, but I just want to say that I think that Tucker's take on it immediately after when he was filmed in the in the dressing room, after, the, after having read Putin's body language and so on, which was that Putin was a wounded man and felt betrayed and wounded and humiliated by the West. And although you can fault Tucker Carlson for not being up on 13th century Russian history, which Putin, uh, perhaps bored the audience uh, on uh, for the first half hour and maybe lost countless viewers. Um, I think that his, his uh, journalist's reading of the personality Putin was as an accurate one. Um, I think that it was a mistake by Putin to talk about uh, early history in Eastern Europe, which is always going to be contested. And it was duly pulled apart by historians that the mainstream media were able to oblige us with. And maybe that was a mistake because Putin is not a historian and so on. And it was only after half an hour when he got into the proper topic of, of the aftermath of the events leading up to the invasion of Ukraine, which didn't start in 2022. And he gave us an interesting catalogue, which might be new to many people, but wouldn't be new to those who follow Russian politics obsessively. But for instance, in 2000, I'll just run through it. In 2000, he wanted to join NATO. Uh, Clinton, then president, said, yeah, why not? Uh, and, uh, and and the deep state, the CIA or whatever, the, the dark men behind him, uh, uh, Clinton said no. 2001, as we know, uh, just in parenthesis, uh, that the, the Russians were very helpful after 9-11 and supplied the Americans with bases and gave this beautiful teardrop-shaped sculpture, which I think sits in New, New Jersey right now if it hasn't been taken down uh, amid all the Russophobia. So that's, that was a gesture of, of opening up towards the United States. And 2000 and, 
uh, eight, the uh, uh, the Russians suggested to join an, uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which would have formed a common missile defense against rogue actors. Again, it was a, a reaching out for a joint dialogue or management of peace in the world against terrorists or whatever. And again, that was rebuffed by uh, the, the dark men behind the then President uh, Bush. And in uh, 2011, Putin didn't say it, but I can say it, uh, the, the Russians supported the, the NATO uh, action in um, Libya, albeit with some reluctance. And that, of course, morphed into regime change operation, which has left Libya devastated. And from what I gather, uh, the uh, Putin started obsessively watching the last moments of Gaddafi as he was butchered. This man who led uh, the, the most prosperous state in Africa, whatever you think of his eccentricities. And of course, the, the Western media grinder uh, alighted on Putin eventually after having uh, done the monster Assad and Gaddafi uh, with the usual dictator, mon uh, Hitler type label. So, I mean, Putin could be forgiven, if nothing else, that they were coming for him, having the, the sort of media organ started uh, attacking him. Anyway, um, I, I always thought, I even thought back in 19, uh, 2014, 15, that he was, um, he, he was a man who felt pride in, in raising Russia up from uh, this devastating state. It was in the 1990s with, uh, and I, I lived through it. I didn't say I didn't live through it. I, I visited Russia and Eastern Europe then to the sort of upper middle income country it is today with, uh, with much lower death rates, much lower alcoholism rates, much higher GDP, shopping centers galore and so on. And I think that he wanted recognition and respect for Russia as a great power. And he never got that, partly, I guess, because Russia was and is a too large a country to be absorbed into the US-dominated NATO system, and uh, America didn't brook any rivals. And I think at some point, maybe the West settled on the opportunity to, to slice up Russia into sub-states that they could dominate and steal Russia's resources. And I think Putin wised up to this and obviously much against it, because in a way, Russia is weak demographically. It's only got a population of 145 million and a low birth rate. So I think he was, he has a just reasons to fear that, even though I think it's true, but maybe it's not true. And I think that all that came through, he wanted to be respected as an equal and that respect never came, never underestimate things like that. Um, Anyway, I think what we've got is a, is a deep state and, and a media in the West, which are utterly, I mean, they're really aggressive. And they came back at him at the weekend using uh, attacks on Trump as a sort of surrogate, saying Trump was going to pull, uh, allow Russia to attack any uh, states that didn't pull their weight in NATO and so on. And so that shifted the, very quickly after the Tucker Putin debate or interview, you had the, the shift to an argument where the Western media felt familiar, which is evil Trump, orange man, bad, Russian agent Trump. And I guess we're going to see that for the next eight or 10 months. It's going to be 2016 all over again. Anyway, we'll be talking more about uh, Trump, Putin, and Tucker Carlson as the days go on. But now we're on to the day's headlines. This is TNT Radio. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I've been in the car all day and I got to listen. Can't get enough of it. You guys are doing a great job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Basil. Uh, this is Basil Valentine's our news producer. What have you got for us today, Basil? Worrying developments in good. the Middle East, I understand. Yes, good morning, Pelly, and hello to our viewers and listeners all around the world. They're calling it the Super Bowl massacre. Apparently... Wow. Uh, Joe Biden gave Netanyahu 
the green light for a major assault on Rafa, previously designated a safe zone where I think something like 1.3 million Palestinian individuals are crammed into an area much smaller than Manhattan. And uh, the bombing started in the middle of the night, continued all night. Hundreds of people have been killed, civilians. Uh, the European Union's chief diplomat, Joseph Borrell, has said that he is extraordinarily concerned. But this cuts no ice. What does this mean? At the same time, the leader of the German uh, opposition, uh, Friedrich Merz, leader of the Christian, so-called Christian Democratic Union, uh, has been in Jerusalem today shaking hands with uh, the chief butcher himself, Netanyahu. The pictures coming out of Rafa are extremely disturbing. And, uh, you know, even the likes of Keir Starmer had started rowing back from their previous positions with the Labour Party in total meltdown and facing by-election defeat in Rochdale. Um, but it seems in the conversation, the key conversation between Biden and Netanyahu last night, Netanyahu promised to be a good boy, promised mm. to follow the rules of international engagement and then proceeded to bomb civilians to smithereens. My feeling is having... Uh... I know far less about the subject than you do, but that Netanyahu is absolutely implacable. And, and um, Oliver Stone's judgment of him having talked to him was that he's a madman. And Kennedy always worried about if, what, what, what would happen to the world if we had a madman with nukes. And I think we're at that stage now. Um, Indeed. Is there anything the West can do? Let's suppose that it, the, the Western governments were full of people like us, you know. What can we do? The political will might be uh, lacking at the moment, but do we have the capacity to stop this? If oh, yes. To? I mean, absolutely. We at least have the capacity to try. Uh, the Dutch appeals court has ordered the Dutch government to block all exports of F-35 fighter jet pilots to Israel within seven days. It is undeniable that there is a clear risk of the exported F-35 parts are used in serious violations of international humanitarian law. Well, we know this from the ICJ, but the United States is continuing to supply Israel with arms and ammunition, as well, of course, as the diplomatic cover. And Declassified this morning have reported that uh, Israeli officers from the IDF may be being trained in Britain by our army. This is absolutely disgraceful. Wow. And aren't SAS on the ground you in Gaza? Yeah. Pardon? Well, well, weren't the SAS on the ground in Gaza or something? Well, the we don't British know Special Forces. That. Right. We don't know that. Uh, I can report that the UK government has been told it has a duty not just to support the orders of the International Court of Justice, but to change UK policy by suspending the supply of arms to Israel. This came in a letter from 30 UK-based organisations, Excuse me. <coughs> including legal <coughs> excuse me excuse, including legal and atrocity prevention groups right the letter well, was sent a... last week it argues that the government has a signatory to the genocide convention 
is bound to ensure it helps prevent and ensure it is not complicit in violations of the convention. The provisional measures issued by the ICJ therefore have immediate and urgent implications for UK policy. But are we mm. going to see any change? That's the point. Well, Basil, I mean, is this American policy accompanied carrots and sticks? Are there any sticks at all? Or do you think, no. I mean, whatever sticks haven't obviously haven't worked. And we've got a senile president who, I, I don't know, I saw the other news was that he he's uh, been warned by the New York Times, which is the... Uh, the paper that all the other liberal outlets in the US treat as the Bible have kind of laid down the line that he's not really fit to be president, you know, uh, at the age of 81, let alone at the age of 85 or 86, which will be when he departs, leaves office. So, I mean, we've got Netanyahu running rings around a senile president. Um, yes, exactly. And uh, no attention to him whatsoever. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, APAC was. Uh, out in force last week, pushing through the latest multi-billion dollar weapons package. I mean, it all strikes me as being uh, more than sinister, Pele. You know, we mm. should have an immediate and permanent ceasefire. Uh, you know, the scale of suffering in Gaza is absolutely off the charts compared to yeah. anything we've seen in the last 20 years. It's incredible. I mean, how many, how many, what's the death rate now? And then what's the death rate per day? And how many civilians? I think overwhelmingly they're women and children, aren't they? And, and I guess the Western media yes. are not covering it properly, are they? Not as, That's not, as, not, as effectively, not effective as effectively as they should be. They've been kind of shamed into covering a little bit more um, mm. by virtue of the fact that, of course, that people can go on social media and find out what's really happening. You know, mm. uh, there was this absolutely, I mean, just indescribably hellish case of the six-year-old girl trapped in a car with the bodies of her dead relatives who had already been killed. And it turns out now that she's been killed as well, murdered, you know, and, and yet the press, the UK press report her as having died as if she oh, yeah, sort of yeah. contracted some mystery illness. It's off, you know, it's abysmal, probably. there's no other way of putting it. Well, I think um, it's interesting, isn't it, that that the, the way language is, because one of our, our guests this after, afternoon is going to be Oliver Boyd Barrett, who's an expert on the way languages are used and misused by the media. So right. um, it's pa Palestinians uh, kill and Israelis die. Is that right? So, I That's mean, there's right. no agency the there in Israelis. That's yeah, the, sorry. The other way around. <laughs> right. there, there was a detailed report uh, a few weeks ago into the language used by the BBC to describe deaths on both sides and words like barbaric are used to describe the actions of Hamas, even though it's to kill only a tiny fraction of the number. I mean, a minuscule fraction of the number of people killed by Israel, but mm. uh, much more insipid language uh, is used to describe Israel, which, of course, is always given the right to defend itself. But nobody ever asks whether Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. That's right. And of course, uh, when when they're given the chance, the media will always downplay this and find the next big thing in Eastern Europe or related to Trump and so on and downgrade. And, and I think we're almost like Pavlovian dogs in this gigantic media circus where we, we even though you're 
even though you and I are extremely clued up to these things, I find myself, um, well, if the BBC hasn't gone big on it, then maybe it's not that that important, even, though, I'm right. no, even though I know. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, I mean, I don't pay any attention to the BBC whatsoever, apart from the football yeah. results, you know. But yeah, yeah. Um, you're right that, you know, aliens could land uh, tomorrow all over the country. But if the BBC don't report it on the news at 10, then did it really happen? Um, yeah. But I just want to sort of finally talk about the Labour Party, um, which is in complete turmoil uh, over the upcoming by-election in Rochdale, uh, which the maverick uh, former MP George Galloway uh, looks increasingly likely to win um, because their candidate, uh, Azar Ali, said that uh, the Israelis had allowed October the 7th to happen. Uh, now, Ali is himself under tremendous fire uh, for not being sufficiently anti-genocide like the rest of the Labour Party, which is why uh, Galloway is running against him. But um, uh, he's been absolutely hauled over the coals for this um, huge Ali. social media pressure. Yeah, saying that he should be forced to stand down. But just, you know, just how inverted the whole conversation around the subject is uh, another Labour MP, Kate Ossimore, she had the party whip withdrawn uh, for saying that Gaza should be remembered as a genocide on Holocaust Memorial Day. Now, what on earth could be wrong with that? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's as if this sort of the events of the Second World War are so sacred, so holy, that nothing can ever be compared to it. Now, we cannot remember victims of the current genocide when remembering victims of a previous genocide. What kind of garbage is that? Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, likewise, uh, Andy MacDonald uh, was suspended, uh, a precautionary suspension, uh, when yeah. he said the words between the river and the sea at a pro-Palestine rally, which are apparently yeah. deeply offensive. Offensive to who exactly and why? The phrase from the river to the sea refers to the increasingly widespread and entirely rational view that from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, there should be a single secular state with equal rights for Palestinians and Jewish people. What's the Basil, problem with I, that? I think um, we've got to go into a break now, but to, the, <laughs> let's, to summarize, I mean, what, what uh, the British electorate are facing is not very much choice between Labour and uh, the Tories in terms of the election this year in, in, in terms of foreign policy, the ah, most well, important foreign policies of the generation. But we'll take a break there and we'll hear the headlines tomorrow and let's hope that some positive developments. But uh, thank you very much, Basil. Talk to you tomorrow. This is TNT Radio. TNT. Sonia Porton. You feel the need to describe yourself, along with being a useless eater, free speech isn't a phobia, as a male with a penis. Why would you feel the need to describe yourself as such? Well, you never know these days, do you? Anyone can have a penis, apparently, so just thought you better make sure everybody knows. And that, and that is the reality, isn't it? Words have lost all meaning. And one of the things that I wanted you to come on and come and join me about and comment about is the whole issue of gender and transgenderism. Are you cis, Jack? No. There's no such thing. There was, there was literally no such thing until a couple of years ago. And it's, it's their religion. It's not mine. And I refuse to get involved with this sort of terminology. It's ridiculous. Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. 
When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to the Pelennial Taylor Show on TNT. We've got uh, our first guest, Edward Dutton, whose work I enormously admire. He's in Finland at the moment, uh, an academic at the University of Oulu. I think I've pronounced that right. And he has written a, a series of hugely fascinating and successful books about how... Uh, Darwinism affects us in in daily life, as it were. The the the, the sort of um, well, he will explain it. But it's it's um, over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to look at different ways by which we can explain the world, whether it's uh, authoritarian regimes versus democracies, U.S. empire versus countries trying to rise up, uh, UN run world. But those are sort of top down ways of looking at the way our world is organized at the moment. But uh, Edward takes us from the bottom up and he has a uh, which is, sort of starts uh, in relations between the sexes starts in the home and starts in our small groups uh, of men and uh, women peers and competing for sexual favors as it were so it's all really down to earth and extremely interesting i mean there are truth bombs on almost every page of his book and i can highly recommend that you look for them on amazon and other places and he also has a has a sort of online pub i think on youtube called the jolly heretic uh, Edward, welcome to the show. Uh, just, I'm going to have you as a as as our Finland correspondent for two or three minutes because they've just had, and then we'll go on to all the other stuff. But uh, what's happened in the, in the Finnish election? Because you had a broadcast. Uh, about I should that emphasize yesterday. that the, the kind of research that I do, which you summarise, gets you cancelled. So I no longer have much to do with the University of Oulu. I'm actually mainly right. affiliated to Aspro University in Poland and the Russian Academy of Sciences. Uh, but what's uh, right, uh, okay. what's 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 going on with uh, the Finnish election? No, it's it's nothing particularly amazing. It's just uh, it's a symbolic post the presidency of Finland. It was between a conservative candidate Alexander Stubb and a Green Party uh, candidate who's a homosexual man who's married to a, a Ecuadorian hairdresser who's twenty one years younger than him. And by the narrowest of margins, Alexander Stubb, the conservative, uh, won, which was to be expected because all of the support in the in the first round from the the nationalist true Finns obviously shifted over to Alexander Stubb. Right. So, um, how did can you explain this and other things in terms of what I said with relations between the sexes and genetics, if you like? Tell us about your your, your latest book, which is deals about education. I'll tell you my theory about what you were trying to do, but you tell me first, what were you trying to achieve with this book and what's it about? What does it tell readers? The, bu the book is called uh, The Naked Classroom, The Evolutionary Psychology of Your Time at School. And I suppose really the idea is to make people understand that the centrality of evolutionary psychology to every other subject. So you may have, uh, you, we tend to divide, remember, at school between people that like humanities subjects, like history and whatever in English literature, and people that like science. Because science, I think, is taught in a boring way. They teach us about how flowers have sex and things that it's irrelevant to everyday life. And it struck me that if they would just teach us the relevance of science to 
everything, then the kind of humanities type, which is what I was like, would understand the beauty of science and, and get into it. So, for example, we might, we might ask ourselves, well, why was it that uh, uh, so many people were prepared to lay down their lives for their countries 200 years ago, but they're not prepared to now? And a part of that is to do with evolution. It's that we were under harsh Darwinian conditions. We were selecting for people that were highly group oriented and were highly mentally stable because of cold conditions and those people winning the battle for survival. And therefore, those and therefore you have a very different psychology from what you have now when we've had 200 years of weakened selection and therefore a growth in people that are that are not that are uh, individually oriented and that are basically evolved to a, to an environment that is that is easy where, where things just grow on the tree. So you have a very different psychology. And therefore, those questions of history make sense. And other questions at school as well that you might ask yourself, you know, why, why is it that we end up in a situation where in, it was the case when I was at school that the hot female RE teacher is having a relationship with a 16 year old boy? What's going on there? Well, it's an evolutionary mismatch. For most of our history, uh, boys of that age are taken away from girl women that are 10 years older than them. They're not put in a situation where they can en en uh, engage in a relationship with them. Put us in an evolutionary mismatch, and of course, that is what you get. Um, and equally other things. Why do you get male teachers having relationships with young female uh, students? And all of these other dimensions to school. What, what, is the what is the science behind it? The questions you would have asked at school but uh, daren't ask at school. And that's what I was trying to achieve with that. Well, what you're sort of saying is also that if you taught that at school, there'd be a kind of self-awareness of the group dynamics. Because in a way, what we all have this high school experience of the the jocks and the queen bees and you know domination games and so on. And if are you trying to inject a sense of self-awareness into into the school community, saying this this is actually going on here, and, this is going and therefore on. we're interested. Yeah. Yeah, understand what's happening. Know what's happening. Why some people that are at school, what you what you call them, the jocks or whatever. There's a stereotype that the jocks are stupid um, and that the, the the nerds are clever. That's not actually true. The reality is, you get some people that are highly intelligent, that are also good at sport, that are also you know good looking, that are attractive to women. Those people are high in what we might call a general fitness factor. And there are good reasons for that, that there are general fitness factor exists, because under, under Darwinian conditions, that which is selected for becomes co-correlated. It becomes player typically related. What are we selecting right. for? We're selecting for genetic health, which is expressed in having a symmetrical face and being muscular and being good looking and being tall. Because if you have good genetic health, then you can reach your phenotypic, uh, your phenotypic maximum on these kinds of traits. We're selecting for intelligence. We're selecting for mental health. We're selecting for pro-social character and being socially skilled. So those so things. Edward, just to interrupt, because we've got to get into headlines. So what you're saying, what you just oh. said was basically uh, everyone, we thought the, the nerds versus the jocks, but actually the, those who have the prizes of, of good looks often have the brains as well. So life is really unfortunate. Anyway, we'll just have the news headlines and we'll get back to this very interesting discussion about evolutionary psychology. Thanks. This is TNT Radio. And action. The News. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Former US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has been heckled by pro-Palestinian protesters at an event in New York. The brother of dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's released a never-before-seen photo of his autopsy, which he claims proves the sex trafficker didn't kill himself. 
And SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has denied claims by Ukraine that he has been supplying his Starlink satellite internet service to Russian troops on the front line. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Uh, welcome back to TNT Radio. This is the Pelineros Taylor Show. We've got Edward Dutton, who's an evolutionary psychologist and has written a series of really fascinating books about things like, which are normally a bit taboo in our Western media, like IQ and intelligence and uh, women's role in society. We might not even have time to talk about these things, but I highly recommend that you look up his books on Amazon and elsewhere, because there is a lot of zingers in there. It will certainly make you think and probably earn you some enemies in the common room if you talk about it. But um, I can highly recommend it. Uh, so, Edward, I, I guess we don't have time to really develop all the arguments, but just um, some things that sort of leapt out at me on the page, like you're talking about uh, women seek harems and, and men, and so um, and they compete, but they collaborate as well. Could you just tell us a little bit about the, 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 your, your harem theory? Your, uh, and well, it's not, it's not my theory. To, yeah, sure. What, what, I mean, what you've successfully done is you've brought in a huge amount of research. And I just add, it's all footnoted. And, uh, and uh, you know, you can go to the original sources if you want to. But tell us about female harems in the modern so the West. Idea is, you know? Yeah, so the idea is that under harsh Darwinian conditions, we are basically, until quite recently, we were a polygamous species. Um, this makes sense. It makes sense. Men sexually select for youth and beauty. And a man can basically have as much sex as he likes that he can get away with. And he'll go for youth because we are willing to get, more to get pregnant. And they go for beauty because beauty is a marker that you have good genes and you have good health and so forth. Women, um, they have a lot to lose. They they need investment. So they, they or, or they could die. So they go for a high status man. The high status man um, says to them, OK, if you want this investment, that I want evidence of your loyalty so you get the development of patriarchy. Now, in many ways, it's better to have a high-status man and be one of many wives of a high-status man than to be one wife to a low-status man because he can give you more resources. Um, he's top of the hierarchy, so he's evidence that he has good genes. Your children are more likely to survive. So you end up with a polygamous mating system. Within that context, uh, of course, the man's going to get more and more women and he's going to discard the, the, the older women as he goes along. And so the women will create... Um, uh, subgroups within the harem. They will create cooperative groups where they will allo-parent each other's children. And so men, male friendships, men will create huge organizations, armies, basically, where they will cooperate with each other uh, in order to fight the other group and gain their resources. Women will create a small group of one-on-one, -on -one very intense friendships, i.e. cliques, uh, of complete equality, because they have to be equal, because they have to trust each other, because they are allo-parenting each other's children. And so that's what you end up with, the, the sex in the city kind of gang, where you won't see another girl that comes along as a potential ally. You might see her as an enemy who might poach your friend. And so there's this sense in which women will tend to be cliquey, um, female workplaces tend to be very nasty and bitchy, and they want equality. They want equality and they want harm avoidance. They're involved to have babies, they're involved to make sure the babies don't get harmed. So women are very, very into harm avoidance, everyone not being harmed, and also equality, that everyone feels equal and equally valued. And, and they judge each other on how nice they are. Men will judge each other to a greater extent on how competent they are. But with women, it's how nice you are, how kind you are, how good a potential allo parent to my children you are. Now, obviously, if women become in charge of society, 
then those that way of thinking is transposed over into society itself. You essentially have people who are adapted and evolved to run a giant nursery school, running a university, running a parliament, running a government. In the case of the, of the Spice Girl government of Finland that we had until quite recently, you know, five Spice Girls that ran our country. Um, and so, of course, this means that when, when they, they, they transpose that psychology over to society, they turn it into a giant nursery school in which they are concerned not with truth, not with logic, not with reason, but with equality, with everyone feeling equal and with everyone feeling uh, uh, not hurt feelings and everyone feeling that they're understood and everyone's kind to them, whatever. And that is antithetical, I think, to the pursuit of truth. That is antithetical mm. to war. That is antithetical to all kinds of things which are also important in society. You have to have that balance. And in a society like Finland, you know, we don't have that balance anymore. But, um, yeah, do, do you think, I mean, we've moved... I, I can't describe it in, in exact detail, but we, we, we've sort of a lot of this globalization versus nationalism debate that's taking place. And, and this channel is very sort of anti-globalist is we've replaced a sort of nationalist societies with more traditional sex divide and um, the men collaborating. I mean, in Sweden's and Finland's cases, often in manufacturing to outcompete the rest of the world rather than war, right? Male groups and then women had their role. And then, um, much more monogamy and much more sort of equality, democracy, national democracy. We've sort of moved, this whole globalization movement has moved into a world where more women take over, but at the same time, uh, a, a, a huge rise in oligarch. I mean, do, okay, I'll, I'll try and rephrase it. Do we have, what is, if we have, a, 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 have the feminists recreated a world where these harems, if you like, are re replicated throughout society? Yeah, yes. They, do they have they, an alpha male that they're looking to? Who's the alpha male in our... You have to you have to understand what what is patriarchy. Patriarchy is the woman says to the man, "If you want sex with me, I want investment." The man says to the woman, "If you want investment, I want to be sure my kids are mine." The woman says to the yeah. man, uh, "The man says, if, if you want to be sure about uh, my kids are mine, I want to control you. I have to control your sexuality." Now you then yeah. get to a situation where you have different groups that are fighting each other. Now, if you different groups that are fighting each other, the group that dominates, according to computer models, are high in positive ethnocentrism and negative ethnocentrism. So let's say they're high in in-group cooperation. How do you get in-group cooperation? Well, you develop monogamy. Because if every man has, or most men, have access to a woman, then you get less intermale conflict, and therefore you're more united, and therefore you can dominate the other group and you can take their resources and so forth. So we have the rise of monogamy. Now, monogamy is not really in the interests of women. It's in the interests of men. What women want, women would much prefer to be part of a big harm of a very high status man than to be the one wife of a low status man. So what feminism does is it breaks down the patriarchy, it destroys the patriarchy, it says, well, women, women can be independent, women can, women can do what they like. Indeed, it takes you back to a situation that you have in more primitive societies where the woman expects to be dumped. The, the woman, the, there's not much patriarchy, the woman expects that the, the, high, the man will you know, pump and dump. And she will just look yeah. after the children herself and she will be higher in sort of masculinizing traits and whatever because she has to kind of look mm. after herself and fight so it breaks mm. down this patriarchy what does that what does that mean it means again you have lots and lots of incels lots and lots of men that can't get access to women um uh, and also you have uh, lo uh, lots and lots of, of sort of serial monogamists or even just de facto polygamy where women will uh, do what they want to do which is orientate themselves around the, the, a small number of very high status men um, right can i just stop you there sorry because we've got to go into the next um, meeting this is but uh, this is fantastic but aren't you just describing the globalization i mean 
But who is the alpha male in this global world? Are you? I mean, what you're saying is that women in Scandinavia, we've got an open borders world with great, greater inequalities. I mean, more oligarchs, more really rich men. And we've moved away from that sort of social democratic uh, worker society that characterized Sweden and Finland of the 1970s. Open borders. Which is more your... Sorry, open borders uh, to a great extent just brings in more men. And that, right. that, that is in the interests of women. It's in the interests of men to have a yeah, small yeah. number of women and the women have to cooperate to get them out. It's in the interest of women to have yeah. a large number of men and, and therefore yeah. it's, it, it assists their, uh, their ease in, uh, in getting, a, get, get, getting a male of some status. Mm. But I don't know okay. otherwise how it relates to globalisation. Right. Well, Edward, that's really interesting because you, what you've done is you've brought the bottom-up analysis of the world, which is absolutely true in my in my mind uh, in, although it might be unpalatable to many and uh, gives us ammunition to discuss these things further with a, an, a hostile mainstream audience thank you very much edward we'll uh, go on to the next guest thanks a lot this is tnt thank radio de-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective so i'm in atlanta georgia because i'm doing a climate roundtable tomorrow i'm assuming that the network that invited me on is probably the only network that's left around this part of the country that actually allows climate skeptics to be on will be interesting because i'm sure there are going to be some people there to challenge me in any case when i walked into the hotel the person at the front desk was from adelaide australia the city of churches see i learn something right and i got to thinking that maybe tomorrow i will spring on the people that are there for almost unprecedented climate events that have occurred around australia that are very very important around the climate now not directly with australia but north of australia the typhoon season despite the fact that we supposedly had an el nino going was way way below normal third lowest ever that's very unusual and that was the first hint that this El Nino wasn't what it was cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, the Southern Oscillation Index, which is the longest running metric of the El Nino, never got into El Nino category this year until now. But that was unprecedented when you had what we call the Oceanic Nino Index being so strong. That's two unprecedented things. Number three, the crash that is occurring in the Southern Oscillation Index is going to be the greatest on record from January to February. In fact, it may be the greatest on record from one month to another. It is unprecedented to see January with an above SOI and then February crashing the way this is. Now, in 1978, we had a weak El Nino going and then it crashed in February. By the way, they had all those floods in Los Angeles in 78. How about that? The fourth thing, the unprecedented warming of the ocean just to the east of Australia in a month or two. See that? Tonight's climate and weather watchdog was all about Australia. It's because I ran into someone from Adelaide. This is TNT Climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Asthma is a growing problem, especially among children. Asthma affects the quality of life for millions like me every single day. My name is Chris Draft and I have asthma. And I've spent more than a decade in the NFL tackling asthma on and off the field. Join me and the EPA in helping people control their asthma. Asthma is a lung condition that can be controlled through medication and by avoiding things that can make it worse. Three steps are the solution to controlling asthma. Step one, Talk to a doctor. Step two, make a plan. And step three, get rid of things that can make it worse. Asthma can be tackled. For more information on asthma, log on to epa.gov asthma. 
discussing national and international issues. You're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Uh, Welcome back to the show. This is TNT Radio, and we are trying to cut through the swathes of propaganda with which we're always surrounded. And who better to do that than Oliver Boyd Barrett, whose books I've read and who's a retired academic uh, from Bowling, sorry, Bowling Green University in Ohio, and has written some of the best texts on propaganda that I've read in recent years, and has also done very profound and incisive analyses of the way that Western propaganda has been applied to some of the conflicts uh, that we've seen in the last 10 years. Um, Oliver, tell us a little bit about your your theory of how the media assists in empire through their propaganda. Uh, media, mainstream media, are now and uh, <clears throat> uh, for hundreds of years have been absolutely essential in the, in the business of propaganda. They are pretty much the only cost-effective means of spreading official narratives to very, very large numbers of uh, people. Uh, most West, Western mainstream media are uh, component parts of much larger uh, conglomerates, uh, some of which are principally media, others are non-media. Uh, they are nearly all of them uh, centrally, centrally located uh, as centers of power. Uh, in uh, collaboration, working alongside other major centers of power uh, in society. They are never uh, independent of of power. Uh, In order to ensure their survival, uh, they have to collaborate with uh, political authorities and, more importantly, uh, with the authorities of uh, the deep state. Mm. When, I mean, I I sort of think that uh, instead of learning... uh, about chemistry, or in addition to learning about chemistry in, I don't know, romance literature of the 13th century, we should all have compulsory courses in propaganda at high school or universities, because it's such a... I used to dismiss media studies, but now I think they're essential. Um, What did you try to uh, inculcate into your students? What, and would that be useful? How can we we spread the message of of the uh, damaging effects of the media to, to a global audience? I, I think, uh, Pele, the most effective means of alerting uh, students and anybody uh, to the uh, one-sided uh, narratives that are provided us by the mainstream, Western mainstream media, at least so far as uh, international affairs are concerned, is simply to provide uh, uh, some uh, in-depth or at least slightly more complicated analysis of the ways in which media actually cover events. Uh, for me, a signal uh, moment in this and, uh, is always useful to remind people about. People too often forget these important messages, is namely the way in which the uh, 2003 uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq uh, took place on the basis of what is generally uh, accepted to be the the, the general consensus is that uh, that invasion took place on the basis of clearly uh, fabricated, knowingly uh, fabricated charges against uh, the government of Saddam Hussein of Iraq, uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein had possession of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the, the, there's rarely been uh, a more obvious case of deliberate uh, deception 
in this instance, of, of a world audience. Uh, so well, I was it, working... I, I, I was working in the London media at the time, and I remember that there was a sense of, well, you know, oh dear, they, the, our bosses screwed up on this one. I mean, I was down on the news floor, as it were. And I know, I mean, I know a lot of my colleagues were then um, still active during the Syria crisis a few years later, and then the uh, Libya crisis, and which are almost textbook copies of the Iraq war, I thought. And I thought... These people, knowing the conversations I've had with them and the sort of se sense of guilt about working in the mainstream media, they cannot have forgotten those conversations I've had with them. So they must, either they, they leave the profession or they agree to, to live in a gigantic lie. I mean, they, we could talk about the Soviet Union. You couldn't be a communist at the same time. You couldn't be a truth teller, you, intelligent and a communist. You could be two of the three, but you couldn't be all three. Well, you could say you can't be a mainstream media journalist who's intelligent, honest, and a, a journalist at the same time. I mean, because you, those three do not work. You have to be either competent and dishonest or intelligent and dishonest and not working in journalism. I mean, you work it out. But I mean, what what, what happened? Because I thought you covered the Syria crisis very well, uh, the, the way you wrote it up, how the lies are similar to the Iraq. Tell us a little bit about what you said in your, in your work on the Syria 2011 onwards. Thank you. Uh, is it... Uh, the the narrative of Syria from uh, the supposed uh, civil uprising, it wasn't a supposed uh, civil uprising, but uh, Western mainstream media presented the Syrian crisis as a crisis that somehow had begun, sort of magically had begun uh, in 2010. Uh, it's a common feature of the ways in which Western mainstream media cover these events uh, is that they cover them from a starting point uh, uh, that... Uh, uh, excludes what are usually very long and complex histories of uh, Western uh, harassment uh, against particular uh, governments and against particular uh, countries. So I, I think that the bottom line with respect to the uh, the tragedy uh, of Syria, uh, in, in particularly in that period, 2010 to, uh, uh, to, to the current day, is that uh, there uh, there are two completely different narratives, uh, of which one I believe is much e much more easily supported by actual evidence. The the narrative that the Western mainstream media uh, had to tell us was that there was this evil, uh, still is this supposedly evil uh, dictator Bashar uh, Assad and his evil uh, regime uh, crushing. Uh, young and uh, um, uh, pro-democracy uh, pro forces. Uh, this, you remember this began during the period of the Arab Spring. Uh, so this whole narrative was neatly encapsulated within this broader narrative of the, of the Arab Spring. And, um, uh, and Assad was brutally crushing these uh, protests uh, and uh, he, he, uh, the people were forming a militia in uh, com to, to uh, in, in, in conflict with the with the, with the regime, and uh, Assad kept on uh, brutally oppressing these people and subjecting them to terrible uh, conditions in prison and, uh, and so on and so forth. The, the, the much more important and much more substantial narrative uh, when we come to Syria is that uh, Syria was governed, uh, this is totally 
uh, overlooked by by mainstream media and in their coverage of the of 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 the, of the conflict that uh, Syria, uh, uh, as were some other uh, uh, Middle Eastern regimes, including uh, Iraq, was governed by a movement uh, called the Baathist uh, movement. Uh, from uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say for, from the, the 1960s, even if um, uh, Hafiz Assad Bashar's father didn't actually come to power uh, sometime later. But the, the, the crucial thing about the Baathist movement, uh, first of all, is socialist. Uh, and secondly, uh, it was all about uh, uh, Arab unity, Arab solidarity, and in particular, Arab solidarity against the uh, constant uh, centuries-old harassment of the Middle East uh, by uh, first the British Empire, then the uh, then the U.S. Uh, Empire. So uh, uh, this this was a regime that was molded in such a way as to be uh, a threat, a danger, an offence, even uh, to uh, Western foreign policy. So you, you find uh, the the first uh, I, I, reference I could find in the literature to U.S. harassment in the modern era. Uh, in Syria was a CIA plan uh, to assassinate uh, Syrian leaders, including proto-Baathist uh, leaders, as early as 1957. So as early as 1957, uh, you can find evidence of CIA planning to assassinate uh, Syrian leaders. And then uh, one of the other uh, very interesting and very telling aspects of the uh, Syrian tragedy is the way in which uh, Western powers uh, made use of or exploited uh, extremist, uh, Salafist uh, Islamism, uh, but in particular in the form of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, whom the uh, British, uh, when they uh, exercised control and influence over Egypt, uh, the British would regularly uh, exploit the, uh, the potential of the Muslim Brotherhood for destabilizing and unsettling uh, the uh, elites of uh, Cairo. And they learned their lesson again, the same also with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in uh, Syria. The Muslim Brotherhood staged uh, uh, a very brutally ugly um, uh, revolt against uh, Assad forces uh, in 1980. Uh, they uh, massacred uh, Many many soldiers and many uh, officials, um, politicians uh, of the uh, of, of the government of that period, and uh, as any almost I think uh, any government uh, would react uh, very decisively and very fiercely uh, against such a threat, existential threat to its existence. Mm -hmm. That is to say, a Muslim Brotherhood instigated uprising seeking support from the broader uh, majority Sunnite population of uh, of, of Syria. Can I uh, just so that was... stop you? Uh, just to hasten along a little bit because uh, we've got five minutes left. Um, the, so what in two thousand eleven exactly? So what happens is the West or MI six and CIA they create these provocations, but the Western media don't report it. Exactly. The government then reacts as any government was, which is to defend itself and defend its people, and then that's reported without the previous provocation being provoked, so it's seeming that the, exactly. the, the attack comes out of nowhere. And what I understood about the Syria thing was that the West, or there were Islamists attacking security forces in 2011, backed by, I mean, I don't know if it was actually ISIS or the Free Syrian Army, and that wasn't reported by the West. 
And of course, the, Assad was worried that they were going to destroy Syria as, a, as the West had destroyed Libya. And uh, we, we didn't report that in the West, but we only reported his crackdowns. So his, his evil activities came out of nowhere, you know? And it's like you throw a punch at someone and someone throws a punch back, but you don't report your initial punch. You only report the guy. And I think that's the Western playbook time and time and time again. Do you think the media know what they're doing or are they just misinformed? I mean, are they? is this all completely cynical or, or what is it? What is the motivation? Yeah, I, I, th I think it's a, a mixture of, of the two. It's uh, in, in part is ignorance, particularly amongst uh, younger uh, reporters. But uh, the media are generally hierarchical uh, organizations. Uh, There's small numbers of people need uh, to be absolutely aware of the nature of the collaboration uh, of mainstream media with the uh, with political authorities and with the and with the deep state, as evidence, for example, in the what used to be called the D-notice system in, in in Great Britain, which is just a an out and out collaboration of mainstream media with uh, with, with with the deep state uh, to make sure that certain things are are, are are not going to be ever going to be properly discussed. The most recent well, one of one of the many recent instances of that would be the uh, the sabotage of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, sabotage of uh, the Nord Stream uh, pipelines, uh, and, and when the evidence was produced by one of the most celebrated of uh, U.S. journalists, Seymour Hersh, that uh, uh, showing how the United States had planned this event, and an event which you know Joseph Joe Biden himself had. Uh, a promise that he was going to do, you know, he said, I'm going to commit this crime. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, despite all the obvious uh, pointers towards U.S. culpability, uh, the Western mainstream media refused even to acknowledge that Seymour Hersh had written the story. And, right, yeah. Uh, well, it's incredible. I mean, well, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to have, if we come alive out of this uh, multi-crisis we, we need some kind of versailles treaty again and that versailles treaty is going to versailles treaty mark ii is going to look at the media intelligence nexus because the media i, I wrote a book about world war one and uh, the origins of world war one and the british media were causing calling the kaiser of germany essentially the same names as they're now calling putin the dictator you know the jackboots and all that and he was a nice guy, the Kaiser. So they've blood libeled the Germans for a hundred years, basically. I mean, then then they then the Germans evolved into the, the people that their enemies wanted them to be because of the economic crisis and so on. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's really terrible. Um, but do you want to say some concluding remarks about how we can get out of this uh, away from the grip? We've got two minutes left. Uh, away from the grip of the mainstream media and how we can start to f find yeah. uh, our way towards grip our way towards a, a, a global truth telling. Yeah, I just uh, quick, quickly in response to your remarks about the Kaiser. So we find the same going on uh, with the uh, Western mainstream media coverage of, of, of Russia, which is actually simply a continuation of uh, two centuries of uh, uh, British, uh, uh, particularly British, uh, British uh, hysteria about the potential power uh, of first Russia and then the Soviet Union. The fact that the Soviet Union was communist was neither here nor there, had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, it was simply that uh, Britain uh, has for so long 
uh, seen Russia as a threat. But in answer to your question, uh, Pele, with respect to what, what can we do, I think we are already doing it. Uh, that is to say, through alternative media, through TNT radio, uh, for example, uh, amongst many sterling examples of, of resistance to the... Oliver, the we've got to stop you there, and we'll have you okay. on again talking about the excellent work that you're doing and that I hope thank we're you. doing as well. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank, thank Oliver you. Boyd thank Barrett, you very much. Propaganda expert. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.